Hello and welcome to the Lorgoise. I'm your host Taya, and I'm Bob. And this week we have a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm a bibliovore orc, or orcish librarian, or Rob, and I'm a magic cosplayer and photographer and punster. And you may know me from the tweeters. Yeah, lots of good tweets, and we've got plenty of questions to cover that. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Card Kingdom. Uh, they're a fantastic supporter of the show. Make sure you go buy your singles and all your yummy magic lore cards from them. I do not recommend eating the cards. Maybe Orc has some better suggestions for what to eat. Um, well, uh, you have so many good options. Uh, books, obviously. Is there a particular magic book you'd suggest eating? Uh, uh, not Ashes of the Sun, because then it will literally be uh, ashes in your mouth. <laughs> Song of Song of Song uh, of Time has a nice mouthfeel to it, I think. And then we'd also like to thank our patrons on Patreon. We appreciate what you do to sponsor us, and thank you very much for uh, supporting the show and supporting the silliness that we bring you every week. And I guarantee this week's episode will follow the same path. <laughs> It's, we're on a trajectory to Sillyville, and there are no breaks on this bus. Well, I mean, this is a Lorgoise podcast. We started in Sillyville. <laughs> it only gets worse from here. <laughs> so so it's, like, it's like a circulator bus is what you're saying. We're just, we're just going around the loop. Yeah, did, did you ever see that movie? Was it Snowpiercer? Oh, with the train that just has to constantly go in a circle? Uh, it's kind of like that, except it's a downward spiral. I, I, w- like I was... <laughs> Given where we started, I was honestly hoping that you were going to do the entire bit from The Simpsons where uh, Homer's at the power plant and he's trying to describe this movie he saw about this bus that had to maintain a certain speed because if it dropped below that speed, then the bus would blow up. So it had to maintain this speed at all costs, and he thinks it was called the bus that couldn't slow down. <laughs> I thought that was where we were going with this, and, and I, I like the direction you took it in, but it zigged where I was expecting a zag. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a good episode, for sure. <laughs> what, what, you fit right in here, what, Rob. What are, we, what are we actually here to talk about? Sim- Simpsons references, right? Uh, we're here to talk about you and oh, your involvement boy. in Magic Community. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, mistake, but... You no, know, so why don't we start with you telling us about yourself and your background? Okay, so I think that the only appropriate way to approach this question is to peel back the curtain a little bit for everybody who's listening, because this will give you more insight into me than, than anything else I could say right here, which is that in the like week leading up to doing this recording, Taya sent me a list of questions to prepare for the podcast, and because I fail at reading comprehension, because I eat things instead of reading them... I didn't realize that this was just like for my benefit to so that I could start thinking. And so I sat down and typed out 22 pages of responses in preparation. Um, and so the first question on the list is, uh, remind us a little bit about who you are. And I'm like, that's okay. That's weird because you all know me. But uh, maybe I can think of some things that you don't already know. So I'm just going to quote some random facts from my 22-page my dissertation because I think that will uh, give people an insight. Grab- I want to I step in there because yeah. it is literally 22 pages. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is not an exaggeration. Uh, we are known for our facts on Lorgoives. This is a fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We have a 20, 22, 23 goif here. 
So I'm, I'm just going to hit some of the highlights here because otherwise we're going to be here for a while. I grew up a nice Midwestern boy, but have since spent uh, 13 years uh, making video games and as a consequence have acquired swearing and high-functioning alcoholism. I have once been in the same room with Yoko Ono, although she did not speak to me. I have performed Uptown Funk in front of about 3,000 GameStop store managers, and let me tell you that after that experience, the universe holds no terrors for you. (laughs) (laughs) I submitted my first uh, rejected flavor text back in 2002, so I think I have a really impressive string going that probably no one else uh, can top in that particular department. Um, I self-published a novella that mashes up Magic the Gathering with Zame Grey Dime Westerns and Bob Dylan. And the most important thing about that is that the uh, wonderful and talented uh, Lindsay Look illustrated the cover. So that's the best thing about the book. And yeah, let's see. What else? Let's let's cut to the chase. I think that your podcast is the bee's knees, oh. Oh. Um, which is an expression that should not have gone out with the jazz age because it's like the this song slaps of the 1920s. <laughs> so I'm going to keep saying bee's knees. Bee's knees. You know, I, I think a lot of, you know, interesting stuff that you've uh, published has been in like the microfiction and the flavor ad and everything. And that that's, you know, definitely been important to me. And uh, we're going to discuss that a bit more. You, you um, can't see it, but when you say that, my heart expands two sizes like uh, the Grinch. What everybody wants to know why we're here. When did you start playing Magic and what kind of brought you in? Uh, so I started playing Magic back in uh, 1995 when 4th edition came out and the acute reason that I started playing Magic was my best friend Mike and I uh, went to the mall and I can't remember if we were going there to go to the arcade or to go to electronics boutique as uh, GameStop was known at the time. But we must have been going for one of those reasons because we had some cash. And on the way, he started telling me about this game that he had he had started playing called Magic, and he thought it was great. And the long story short is that he convinced me that by the time we got to the electronics boutique, we didn't buy whatever we went there to buy. And instead, Whoops. we bought, uh, I think, two 4th edition boosters and one 4th edition starter deck. And so we sat down to uh, crack these cards open. And the the background of all this is that the whole time, uh, I knew nothing about magic. My friend Mike is telling me that the card he wants most in the world is he wants a royal assassin because it can kill any other creature. And he's been trying to get one, trying to get one, trying to get one, and he can't find one. He can't find anyone who will trade him one. And he's desperate. And so literally straight out of like you know the Hollywood scriptwriter's uh, plan, I sit there and I crack the first uh, fourth edition booster pack. And I just casually like pull out the rare, and I'm like, is this the card you're talking about? <laughs> and if looks could kill, I would be dead. Uh, but thankfully, <laughs> they can't. So we opened up the starter deck next, and there was a second Royal Assassin in the starter deck. So I traded him one, and that salvaged the friendship. I mean, your friend had good taste. I started and revised, and then when I first learned about the Royal Assassin, I'm like, isn't this the best card it ever? It can kill everything! And apparently, it's not really a good card, but, it, it, you know, 14-year-old me thought it was amazing. Could you imagine that card being printed now? Like, in black, after we had things like Avatar of Woe, or we'd just be like, this is a rare? I mean, Death Lace was a rare, too, so <laughs> I at least see Royal Assassin played in Commander. This this is this is the same, like, baby orc who uh, then, like, went to his comic book shop and traded away all of his dual lands to get, like, a Mirror Universe and a Leviathan, so my, my card evaluation skills were not 
uh, necessarily super great at the moment. The thing I always tell people is that, you know, when I started playing, the store we went to had uh, revised boosters for sale and Homeland's boosters for sale. And I'll just let you guess uh, which of those two uh, I acquired a lot of. And it probably explains a lot about me today. When I started, it was at the very, you know, revised had just came out. And I bought my first starter at Electronics Boutique, too, um, coincidentally. <laughs> Uh, because that's where kids hung out in the 90s. Yeah. And uh, afterwards, once I got into it, started going to other shops. And there were some that had unlimited packs left. Not a whole lot, but they had some. But I was like, I could buy three revised packs instead of one of those. Of course, I had no idea about Power 9 or anything at the time. Yes, we were so innocent. Yep. And I have definitely traded Dual Lands for Shivan Dragons. <laughs> that is... Yeah, I mean, absolutely a thing that that happened. I justify it with saying, it doesn't matter how much the card is worth now, it's how much I valued that piece of cardboard back in the day. And apparently, I just like dragons better. I really wanted that mirror universe because this was, you know, pre-6th edition rules. Like, the coolest way you could kill someone was to drop your own life down to zero and then mirror universe them. And then that doesn't work anymore, which, you know, uh, sadness. But yeah, so I, I yeah. played pretty much um, from 1995 up through the original Mirrodin, and then I took kind of an extended hiatus from the game just because I was, A, I didn't have anybody uh, locally who I could play with, and B, I was off doing other things in my life, and then uh, completely non-coincidentally, I came back right around when Scars of Mirrodin was released, so I have kind of a Mirrodin to Mirrodin-shaped gap in my history with magic during which fortunately nothing important happened like they didn't do the mending during that period and planeswalkers didn't become no. a thing during that period introduced so. ravnica <laughs> yeah yeah so fortunately it was a calm period fortunately i was able to just slot right back in like nothing happened and uh, i've been uh playing again ever since although these days it's you know i don't play competitive formats anymore i had a revelation some point ago that i didn't care who won magic games anymore and i just wanted to uh hang out with people and so now i play EDH and I you know forget that it's my turn because I'm busy talking to people until somebody gives me that look and reminds yeah. me that it's my turn. So with so many different aspects of magic, you know, what really attracted you to the story part of it? Um, so for, for this, we have to go back to the period that you know people like some people like to harken back to is like the good old days, and I think it's you know it, objectively it was the bad old days, but it was, this was these were the old days, and this was when I came along across all this. I'm guessing that most of the people listening to this will never have seen um, any of the old Harper Collins novels that were the original uh, magic books and may not even know they existed because these are not the portion of magic story that Wizards is eagerly promoting on their website these <laughs> days. But so back in the day, there was a Magic the Gathering line of branded novels, paperback novels that were published by Harper Prism. And they had, I think it is fair to say, only the... I'm going to caveat my statement. Some of them had tangible connections to magic, and others were connected to magic only in the most like whisper-thin, tangential way possible. Like You could tell that the editors at Harper Prism had just sent people who were writing these like a three-paragraph summary that said, it's a card game with magic spells, and there's planeswalkers, and we don't know how that works, but, you know, tie it in somehow. And so... Uh, these novels of dubious uh, canonicity these days and everything, every single book and every single author had entirely different interpretations of how everything in magic worked. What planeswalking was, how magic worked, what mana was, any of that. Some of them had like literally no connection to anything except you know, they would name drop a couple cards in the book. Yeah. But, so this, this was my introduction into magic story, and it happened, of all things, because I got like sick. 
and I had to stay home from school. And so my parents got me one of these books at the local Walden Books, which was where we bought books back then, because it had magic on the cover, and they knew that was a thing I liked. And I read it to cover to cover and went on to, you know, like try to read every other one of those that I could get my hands on, except I never got to read Whispering Woods because Walden Books didn't have it. So I read the second two books in the Gull and Greensleeves trilogy, but to this day have not read the first one. So I don't know how all those characters started out, which is interesting. And I didn't finish uh, Song of Time because I accidentally left it in the seat back compartment on an airplane. So I still don't know how that book ends. <laughs> but but I read I read all these books to the point where they fell apart, or in the case of Arena, I dropped it in the bathtub. And that did for Arena, unfortunately. Arena was a novel back before it was the the new online client. Yeah, it was one of the Exodus novels. If I remember correctly. No, Arena was like the first novel. It was like a literal interpretation of... or one, it was a literal interpretation of the magic rules, essentially, as a novel. It, again, like if everything you knew about magic was that your editor sent you like a starter deck and a three-paragraph summary, and you sat down and tried to write about this, you you would come up with Arena, and it even like almost breaks the fourth wall at one point where there's a scene in the book where the main character is at a bar in the book or tavern. It's fantasy, so it's a tavern, not a bar and sees other people sitting at that tavern playing a card game in which they reenact a magic duel using spells on cards. So it's like it's like magicception in this book where like magic exists in this magic universe. I still have my original arena card from the Malin promo on the book. Of course, all my cards were stolen in college. Well, at least all the cards I had with me, so my good cards. So some of the bad cards I had stuck in the closet, like arena, I still have. Yeah. <laughs> So, and of course, the one Malin card I did not have you know, was the one that's actually playable. Yeah. And again, like, I'm sorry, I can't help it. I'm going to go down these rabbit holes just because I, all this stuff fascinates me. So the thing that, again, people may not know who weren't around back in the bad old days is that one of the, the things to encourage you to buy these paperback novels was you could clip your, like, coupon from inside. Each one had, a, like, a proof-of-purchase coupon inside, and you could clip it out, and you could mail it in to an address and they would send you a promo card or two. And each of the books had different cards. It was one of the Gull and Greensleeves books had Mana Crypt in it, which is the one good promo card. Arena had two. There was a card called, fittingly enough, Arena. Um, and then there was the card called Sewers of Estark, which was named after the city, which is featured in the book. Except that, clearly, when they were doing the layout for the back cover of the book... I don't think the name Estark is even mentioned in the novel in any place. I'd have to go back and check. I don't think they ever name-dropped the city, and clearly whoever was putting together the back cover for the book didn't know what the city was called. Because on the back cover of the book, the the name of the card that you can get says, Sewers of City Name. (laughs) And that was how they printed it, and that was how it was in your Walden books. When you picked it up and looked at the back cover, you you could send in for Arena and Sewers of City Name. Early magic. I mean, that that wasn't just the books. That was, like, everything about early magic. It's kind of about current magic, too. I'm just saying, I I still see these things. Kind of the way I think of it in my head is that I think of that era of magic storytelling as what I call kind of like the Dungeon Master era of magic storytelling, because that was where the narrative was coming from. It wasn't, you know, people Mm -hmm. uh, other than, you know, the Harper Prism novels, which obviously were were written by professional writers, but they weren't, you know, associated with the game. It was farmed out to them. Where the actual official magic story was coming from inside the game, it was just the people who worked at Wizards, making it up as they went along. And 
I think that where a lot of that comes from is you look at like what was their frame of reference for narrative? What was their frame of reference for storytelling? Were they they were all people who liked D and D? They were dungeon masters. That was I think that was the frame of reference for storytelling. And if you look at like early Magic story, especially as it's represented like on cards and in flavor text in that era of the game, basically what you're seeing is somebody's Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Like that, you know, yeah. Urza, like Mishra, the Brothers' is. War, you know, like all the legends, you know, literally the legends in the case of legends, you know, all these yeah. artifacts, you know, let's get the gang together and they're going to go on a planeswalking skyship and they're going to go fight shape, sh- like all of this is coming from that like mode of like Dungeons and Dragons storytelling. And I think that's where a lot of that early narrative kind of kind of came from. And you can see that when you go back and look at like the pre-mending uh, story from Magic. You know, one thing that you, you're known for is good old football Jace. <laughs> personally one of my favorite cosplays ever. Oh, thank you. Um, how, how did you uh, get involved in cosplay? What, what, what brought you to that? So, uh, I mean, my cosplay origin story is going to be the same, frankly, as a ridiculous percentage of people who are doing magic cosplay right now, which is that I saw Christine Sprankles, Elspeth on the coverage for, mm. I can't remember if it was a world championships or a pro tour, but it was, it was some event where Christine was there in her Elspeth, and this probably would have been back around 2011, like sometime in that realm where, where it was one of the first magic cosplays that really got a lot of coverage. And cosplay was not something that was on my radar at that time. I didn't know what the word was, I didn't know what it was, but I remember seeing Christine's Elspeth and just thinking, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. There's a, there's a quote that I overuse aggressively in every phase of my life, which is Bruce Springsteen said something to the effect of hearing the opening snare drum hit in Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone was like somebody kicking open the door to your mind. And that, that was kind of, that's the only way I can describe kind of the experience of, of seeing Christine's Elspeth was it was like that kicked open the door to my imagination that here was something that I had never even known existed. And here it was, and it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I just knew that I wanted to do it. And seeing Christine made you think that like that was something that you could do yourself. And whenever I talk to people in the magic cosplay community and we say, you know, what got you started doing magic cosplay? This is the thing you hear over and over and over and over again is I saw Christine, I saw Christine, and that made me want to do it too. And I, I am being 100% serious when I say that Christine Sprankle should be in the Magic Hall of Fame. Mm. She has brought more people into the game through things like that than pretty much anybody else associated with Magic. And so we flash forward to GP Las Vegas 2017, which was my first time ever going to a Magic GP, uh, like a big GP. And that was also where the first Magic Art Show was going to be. And one of the essentially stretch goals for the, the mag- original Magic Art Show was a Kickstarter. And one of the stretch goals for that Kickstarter was if they raised enough money, they were going to have cosplayers working at the Magic Art Show. An entire group of cosplayers led by MJ Scott or uh, Moxie MTG, as people may, al- may also know her. And MJ Scott is another person who I would put in the Magic Hall of Fame in a heartbeat. She's a cosplayer. She's a writer, you know, does card naming and flavor uh, for Magic. She's done just incredible work for the game. And she has been a force for diversity and inclusion, and especially in cosplay, but in all aspects of Magic. And she essentially put out the call and, like, rounded up this entire group of Magic cosplayers, many of whom, you know, had never met each other in person. And they all converged on GP Las Vegas 2017 to work at this show. And I knew MJ only tangentially 
through through online through Twitter, and she basically put out a call. She's like, "Can anybody who's coming to this event take photos? Because we're going to have all these cosplayers here, and it would be great to have somebody who can take pictures." And I wrote back, and I'm like, "Literally, my qualification for this is I own a camera." And it was like, boom, done, you're the one. And so that was how I became the sort of unofficial official photographer for the, the cosplayers at GP Las Vegas 2017. And then from there, it was a short stretch to say, well, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be trying to meet all these people for the first time. And that's already terrifying enough. Like that already is the most frightening thing I can comprehend because I don't know any of these people. They don't know me. Uh, so let's just compound that and put another additionally terrifying thing on top of it. And I'll try to do my first cosplay because I'm already scared uh, bleepless. <laughs> so, so why not do this other thing that I'm terrified of and we'll just ro- we'll get all the fear out of the way at the same time. And so I cosplayed as uh, Ron the Relentless um, there for, for GP Las Vegas 2017. And that was my first ever cosplay. I remember that Magic Fest fondly. It was really incredible seeing the like whole cosplay community there together in one place for the first time. Yeah. And for me, going and seeing... The cosplayers is like, you know, one of the very top reasons I even go to a Magic Fest now. Yeah. You know, that really is a a huge attraction for me to even go. I I don't play in the main events or anything. I want to go play Commander and see these people show off their awesome creativity and their love for the universe. And uniformly, cosplayers are, in addition to being incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking artists craftspeople, performers, all those things go into cosplay. They're artists, they're designers, they're craftspeople, they're performers. They're also uniformly the nicest people you could ever want to meet. It's it's just astonishing. And believe me, it's a challenge to be nice when you're dressed up in like foam armor in Las Vegas in August and you've spent the whole day on your feet <laughs> and you're wearing, you know, cosplay boots, which uniformly cosplay boots look great and are painful as hell to wear because they're not designed for your comfort they're designed to look cool yeah and you know you've spent all day like every time you want to go to the bathroom you have to take all of this stuff off and you need three people to hold your armor so you can go to the bathroom you know you can't carry anything with you because it doesn't fit with the costume because planeswalkers don't have pockets for some reason you know jace has 127 belts but he doesn't have any pockets and you know, people are asking you for photos, people are, you know, talking to you about your costume. It's exhausting, and yet somehow cosplayers are still the nicest people you'd ever want to meet, and it, it never ceases to amaze me. They're, they're wonderful, and it is, it, it's a community in, in the full sense of that term. You know, my experience going into this was, again, I went to this event not knowing anybody there. I had never met any of these people in person. None of them knew who I was. I was this guy who just showed up and was like, hey, can I take photos of you? Like, that's objectively creepy. That's an objectively creepy way to meet someone. And I made, like, two dozen friends for life. I, I would fight a grizzly bear for any of these people. It, it, it's amazing. They are. I have to agree. They're, they're absolutely great people because... At Reno, right before this whole quarantine happened, I did my first Magic Fest in cosplay. Yes. Um, so I also, I plus one those boots, because I had the worst leg cramps taking those boots off ever. <laughs> I wanted to do cosplay, because I literally wanted to be friends with these people, because they are amazing. Yeah. Whenever people ask me, you know, like, what's your advice for someone who wants to get started in cosplay, my, my first piece of advice is go look up resources from people who are way better at it than I am, and there's tons of those out there. But my second thing is always insoles. And people laugh, and they're like, oh, you're joking. And I'm like, I am not joking at all. I am dead serious. 
buy buy a pair of good insoles. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much they cost. Like you're gonna look at it now, you're gonna be like sixty dollars for insoles. I don't think so. And then at the end of your first day in cosplay, you're gonna be like, best sixty dollars I've spent in my entire life. Yeah, I went to the first Command Fest Seattle um, in December. The first time I wore a cosplay to an event and that was just basically my closet hikara cosplay i, I remember and this. even wearing boots that i had i am just like oh this sucks so much being you know on the show floor the whole day you know wearing that and the heavy coat and i was like just thinking of some of the people who have these huge elaborate costumes and i already knew it you know that was a you know, a, a hot, painful thing, and I'm just like, I even had more respect for them after it, that than I did before. It's, it's brutal, and it's one of these things where you don't realize how brutal it is until you've done it. And, it. and it's in part because the cosplayers are so good at what they do, they make it look easy. They make it look effortless. Like, you see, you know, someone like Nadine, you know, wearing her full Huatli, and, you know, being engaging, playing commander, doing all these things. You're like, that looks easy. And then you try it yourself and you realize it is the opposite of easy. Yeah, the uh, cosplaying commander event at uh, Seattle 2019 was one of the coolest events I've ever done, or 2018, yeah. whichever year it was. When, yeah, it, it, uh, it, that was so much fun. It's, it's 2018, and my favorite thing from that was Angel, who's, you know, IE I. Amethyst, uh, AI Amethyst, excuse me, on, on Twitter, who's a, a fantastic cosplayer who did Rada for that event. Rada Erdekeld, complete with severed head, and just as she was playing, just like, put the head on the table next to her and just kind of pointed it at the rest of the pod in what I'm sure was not in any, any attempt a way to intimidate people, but it was fantastic. And I took some portraits of Angel afterwards. I took photos of her, you know, holding up the severed head, and I encountered two problems, one of which at the time and one later. The problem I encountered at the time was that the severed head was so convincing that the autofocus on the camera would try to focus on the severed head prop because it thought it was a person. And, it, you know, cameras have face detection built in now. They see faces. They try to focus on it. And it confused the camera. And I ended up with a bunch of pictures where she was out of focus. And the severed head looked really great. <laughs> um, but she was out of focus. And then the thing I discovered later when I came back after the event started uploading all of the photographs into photo software like Google Photos has built-in face recognition. And it tries to pick out people. It, it created its own album for the severed head. <laughs> It flagged all the pictures that the severed head was in and gave it its own album. And it's like, who's this person? What's this person's name? I made an album for them. Wow. Yeah, I, I had the the pleasure to play against Olivia's uh, Brea yes. deck while she was in her Brea costume. And she, and she won the event. Our pod got obliterated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I can't remember that it's my turn, you know, when I'm dressed normally, so... And I think we've kind of covered this at all. You know, what is your favorite aspect of the cosplay community? I think we kind of answered. It's the people. It's it's a it's a community, and this is the reason I go to events is because I, these are my friends, and I want to see them, and I want you know I love taking photos, I love doing it. I like cosplay. I like performing it. I'm still nervous as hell whenever I do it. It terrifies me in a kind of like special deep down way that almost nothing else in the world terrifies me. Like. To me, being in a cosplay is scarier than, than singing Uptown Funk for those 3,000 GameStop store managers. Like, cosplay is much scarier than that for me because that, that's not my personality. That, that's not sort of the way I usually am. I, I don't have that kind of, like, act. I don't have any acting background. I was never one of the drama kids in high school or anything like that. 
And so there's this performance aspect of it that I, f- I still to this day find deeply frightening. You know, I, di- I did the cosplay showcase at Vegas 2019. And as I was getting ready to go up on stage, I literally was sitting there and I'm like, I'm having palpitations. Like, I'm this close to having a panic attack. I'm this close to throwing up. And it's like a minor miracle that I did not throw up on Sydney's uh, Niv-Mizzet sneak- sneakers when she was emceeing the event and like tried to get me to say something on stage. I have, I have no memory of what I did or said on stage at all. I remember Sydney giving me like weird looks like I was not, like we'd rehearsed the bit beforehand and I clearly was not delivering the lines that we'd practiced because I remember her staring at me like, you're going off the rails here, orc. That, that, that's the only thing I remember. I don't remember what I said. But, but it is, it's, it's these people, you know, they're, they're amazing and they're wonderful and they're the kindest people you would ever want to meet. And it is a community and everybody is pushing for each other and helping each other out. You know, my favorite part of preview season is that as soon as like the new Planeswalkers come out, like they're immediately in cosplay chat. Like people are posting art of the new Planeswalkers and trying to figure out like, what is this outfit and how on earth are you going to build this and why does Jace have 137 belts and what does this character look like from behind or from the waist down like these angles we don't see like trying to piece it together like people will telestrate this like it's a football play like they're drawing on top of the art trying to figure out like how the straps in the front connect to the straps in the back and where does this piece go and you're trying to figure out you know is any of this clothing actually supposed to be functional like could you even wear this and, and, you know, oh my God, Liliana has a shawl now and, and all of these things. And it's just, it's wonderful. These are just, these are my friends. This is, you know, this is what I want to do. My, my closing thought, just to double back here for a second, is that cosplay friends are the people who hold your armor for you while you pee. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's, I think, the deepest, uh, most enduring sort of friendship there is. <laughs> Yeah, the, the hold my wig while I puke. Kind of. <laughs> I this. I uh, sorry. We, we'll move on from this in a second. But I just I keep thinking of things. Um, at at GP Portland 2018, I did my Demir Agent cosplay, or as I like to call him, uh, one vampy boy. And to, to me, again, one of the things that terrifies me about cosplay is that walk from the hotel to the venue, uh, where you're already dressed mm-hmm. up, and it's easier in some places than in others. It's not so bad in Las Vegas because no matter what you're wearing, you're not the weirdest person in the elevator in Las Vegas. There's nothing you could come down the elevator in the Westgate wearing and it would shock anybody in Las Vegas. So my, my Demir agent cosplay, the, the joke that somebody made that stuck with me is it looked like I was on my way to rehearse with the My Chemical Romance tribute band. <laughs> it's kind of the way that I can describe this cosplay. This uh, sort of like emo vampy boy and i was able to walk from the hotel to the convention center in there in portland and nobody batted an eyelash because that's just how people dress in portland like you can walk down the street dressed as an emo vampire and that looks totally normal and someone driving past in a pickup truck rolled down the window and i was like oh here it comes and the guy just leaned out and said nice boots That that is very Portland. With with what I believe was complete sincerity. Yeah, that that's very Portland. <laughs> so I, th- I think we're gonna jump ahead here a little bit because we've talked a lot and we've answered some of our <laughs> questions already. But you know, what magic character would you want to see cosplayed that you've never seen cosplayed before? Yeah, this was interesting when you asked me this. I had to think about it for a minute, and I don't think I've ever seen anybody do uh, Rain, Rain Academy Chancellor, and I think it would be fantastic to uh 
see a rain cosplay. I, I've done a Baron cosplay, which is all of a sudden relevant today because Baron's back. Yeah, I was going to say this is a, this is a perfect day to talk about. Listen, this particular knock me knock topic. me down with a feather because I would not have expected to get Baron, and if we were going to get Baron, I would have thought it would be in Commander Legends, as opposed to to a core set of all places. But yeah, Baron's back, and I've I've cosplayed Baron, and now I'm going to have to cosplay Baron again, and that's like I couldn't be possibly be happier about this this burden which i suddenly <laughs> feel myself under because i would love to do baron again and I, I i would love to do a dominant big dominaria group someday uh where we have baron and rain yeah. and teferi and urza and joira and joda Jorel just got a new yeah, card Hannah. and mangara i mean it's like so much classic dominaria yeah and and specifically like all the tolarian academy characters i would i would love to do mm-hmm. a group shoot and it one of the things that really that uh, that i deeply regret is that we had almost all of those characters at seattle in 2018 you know i did baron we had sydney doing joira we had we had teferi we had hannah and we never did like a group photo with all of us in the same picture and it's 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 weird but like these are the things that haunt me at night sometimes when i'm going back and looking at old photos i'm like oh we didn't we didn't do a group shot with with x y and z and it's it's i wish we'd done that but sometime in the future when when we're allowed to all gather together in person again yeah which feeds directly into the next question is like with at least no in-person events for the rest of the year and who knows how long what what you know what do you think the future of cosplay looks like i think it's complicated and and i'll caveat this up front by saying that i'm not even the best person to answer this question because i don't cosplay with the same frequency or the, or the same certainly the same level of professionalism as, as a lot of the people i know do i don't think it's going anywhere i want to be clear about that up front i think that most of the people who cosplay, they cosplay because they love doing it. And if the only way to cosplay was to do it with things they already had in their closet and to take cell phone selfies in front of the bathroom mirror, they, they would still be doing cosplay because it's you know it comes from that drive to create and it comes from a place of love for the characters and the art form. So it's not going to go away. People are still going to do it. And I'm really happy at some of the the places that content creators like Tolarian Community College and Wizards using uh, cosplayers to reveal like one of the secret lair drops. Like People are finding ways to keep cosplayers involved. Channel Fireball has done a great job uh, inviting cosplayers on to do event coverage and things like that. So like cosplayers are staying involved. But, you know, in, in a world where there, there aren't these big, you know, in-person gatherings, it's difficult because that's where you know that's that's where the groups get together that's where you can't do a group shoot right now i mean you could you could take pictures individually you could edit it together you can do things like you know the pass the brush challenge like there've been all these you know pass the brush cosplay videos and they're all fantastic and they're wonderful and i love them but it's not the same as having everybody together in the same place and a lot of the sponsorship opportunities that exist for cosplay in the magic space are tied to these big events it's tied to scg con or the big, you know, Magic Fests, or um, you know, the the Wizards booth at something like SDCC. Those those are some of the few opportunities for people to get sponsorships to go and do cosplay. And those opportunities just don't exist when those events don't exist. And I I hope that they're going to come back. But in the meantime, it's you know, people are finding ways to do things online and stay active. But cosplay is ruinously expensive. I don't think people understand how expensive it can be. I should caveat that statement by saying you can also cosplay 
with stuff you have in your closet, stuff you got at the thrift store, and that's a perfectly valid cosplay, and you can do amazing stuff like that. We had uh, Peachy Pop Cost was a, one of the cosplayers at Seattle 2019, who was in the showcase. She she did a fantastic Nissa, and she talked about how she made Nissa's staff out of you know a broomstick, and like that's the kind of thing you can do. But it, cosplay can also be really really expensive because you've got materials you've got labor you've got all the time that goes into this when you're going to events it's even worse because now you're talking travel you're talking hotel you're talking your meals you're talking the cost of shipping in a johnny act you're fedexing in a johnny axe across the country because you've already got three other pieces of checked luggage full of other johnny parts uh, and you have to fedex the axe like it's a lot of money and i think there's a huge misperception out in the community at large that like cosplayers get paid because most of the time they don't. Nobody is making a living doing magic cosplay. Zero people are making a living doing magic cosplay. And even people who are able to get sponsorship opportunities, if they're lucky, that maybe covers costs for going to an event. You know, at any time that those sorts of opportunities for sponsorship aren't there, it, it makes it harder for people to continue to do things. Yeah, and that is one thing that is kind of sad about the you know magic cosplay community specifically is a lot of other fandoms they're still able to monetize their cosplays at shows or whatever they can sell prints or whatever and they you know they make that really hard to do with the magic that's true like you can't sell prints you can't you're not supposed to sell prints you're not supposed to sell photos you're not supposed to sell play mats you're not supposed to do those things and those are streams of income that exist for people in other fandoms that you're officially not supposed to be doing that for for magic cosplay go support your favorite cosplayers patreon seriously uh, especially right now yeah patreon ko-fi and that's another one of the encouraging things that's been happening is, is i think we have i think more magic cosplayers now than ever have have some sort of avenue whether it's a patreon whether it's a ko-fi where people can contribute and i think that there's hopefully you know more support right now for that than there's ever been before and, and that's all the more remarkable when you consider how many people are hurting right now because of the pandemic because of everything that's going on in the economy like people are there are a lot of people right there out there right now who are strapped for cash but people who have the ability to do it are still finding ways to support artists and cosplayers and that that's fantastic so let's let's move away from the the cosplayer community a little bit and let's let's talk more about you Tell, tell us a little bit about Flavor Added. How did you get started and how has it evolved? Uh, so Flavor Added, hashtag Flavor Added, is a thing that I do on Twitter. And I don't own it. I encourage other people to do it too. It's, it's literally just a hashtag. You put hashtag Flavor Added. And it's an exercise to take magic cards that don't already have flavor text and just invent your own flavor text. If you were writing the flavor text for this card, what would you want to see on it? And I started doing this, I think, probably at about 2 a.m., back in 2017 because I was just flipping through random cards on Scryfall and I don't even know how the idea came into my head but I was looking at these cards that didn't have flavor text and I thought you know what it would be fun just as a writing exercise to sit down and try to imagine flavor text for some of these cards and so I know that the first one I did was time walk I should have looked this up I don't remember what the line was but it was something the flavor line was something about tomorrow is the ultimate horizon or something to that effect and I just put it on Twitter because I have no impulse control, and that's what I do is when I have ideas, I just tweet them. And so I just started tweeting, and I'm like, you know what's fun is you can go through on Scryfall and find cards that don't have flavor text and just start writing your own flavor for it. And I put the hashtag flavor added on it, and then I just started doing one of those every day and tweeting it out. And I think at this point, that was, you know, 
two and a half years ago almost no three and a half years ago almost um and i think at this point i've done i, I mean i know i've done flavor added for more than a thousand different cards and most of them are you know not great but some of them you know are, are pretty okay and and it's i really like it as a writing exercise because it forces you to work within constraints because of the nature of twitter you have Back then, it was 140 characters. Now you have 280 characters to say what you got to say and try to, you know, find something that captures, you know, the spirit of the card, the spirit of the art, the spirit of the mechanic, something that speaks to you and you feel like adds a little lore, a little flavor to this card. And then you can just, you can tweet it. You can use the hashtag. Other people have started doing this and I love it. And sometimes people, you know, tweet me and they're like, is it okay if I do my own flavor ad? And the answer is absolutely. The, the more people do it, the better. I love seeing what other people come up with. This isn't a thing that I own. This is a thing that I love to see other people doing. And, you know, you can do it however you want to do it. You can, you can come at it from the standpoint of, if I was trying to write official text that I would put in a card file, this is what I would do. You can write stupid puns. I write so many stupid puns. I write more puns than they would ever print on actual magic cards, and that's fine because it's for fun. You know, back in the day, they used to put real-world literary quotations on magic cards, and, and I used to do that more than I do it now, but occasionally I'll, I'll find a you know, literary quotation where I'll think, this would actually, I would like to see that on this card, and so you can do that with flavor added. And the, you know, I encourage people to try it for themselves. It's, it's a ton of fun. Really, the only rule of flavor added is, is I, I always ask people, don't ever do it for a card that already has flavor text. The spirit of this exercise is it's supposed to be an additive activity. You know, it's, it's flavor added. It's not flavor replaced. You're not ever taking something that's already been done and saying, here's how I'd do it differently or here's how I'd try to do it better. It's not about that. It's about adding something where it didn't exist before. And I, I love seeing what people come up with. There's definitely been some good ones. And, yeah, I think originally that's when I started following you was for a lot of the, like, flavor ad stuff because I'd see you retweeted into my timeline all the yeah. time. And people... This stuff's really good. Oh, thank you. People come for the puns, and then they stay for the more puns. <laughs> we, we have a high pun quantity uh, on this podcast as well. Phew. We try to. So... You know, kind of going along with that is the other microfiction you do, um, you know, has personally been really important to me. Uh, my pinned tweet for the last year and a half has been something that was a collaboration of, you know, your microfiction and May's art. Um, you know, kind of tell us a bit more about, you know, your involvement with the microfiction. Well, you're burying the lead here first, because the only reason that happened was because you, you approached May about it and had her do the, the sort of cartoon for that one, which is, you know, again, like like I said earlier, like imagine like my, my Grinch heart growing like three sizes, four sizes, five sizes, because I think that's pretty much the, the greatest thing that's ever happened to me on the uh, the otherwise blasted hellscape that is social media. <laughs> and it, 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 it means so much to me. And I've, I've got that print that you made of uh, uh, May's art for that, that microfic that's, that's at my desk uh, at, at my office back when I used to have an office back before all of this happened. And it's, it's sitting at my desk along with uh, a picture of uh, Mrs., Mrs. O.L., my wife, and a sketch that uh, Sydney did of uh, Mrs. O.L. in her uh, Loki cosplay. And those are like the only three things I have at my desk now because I've been working in game development long enough to learn that you got to travel light 
you don't you don't want to you don't want to nest in your workspace because you never know when uh, that's going to be coming to an end. So I travel light, and those are the only three things I have now. But to double back to the actual question, so like I've been writing what I pretentiously call magic-inspired fiction since I think 2013 is when I started doing it, meaning fiction that's not necessarily. Oh, God, am I really going to go down this semantic rabbit hole? Yeah, I'm going to do it. I love fan fiction, and I write that too. But to me, in my mind, fan fiction means specifically taking existing characters and writing new stories using existing characters, whereas what I would call either magic-inspired fiction or magic-expanded multiverse fiction is creating new characters that exist within the larger scope of the magic multiverse and telling stories about them where you don't necessarily use canon locations from the game or canon characters from the game. And it's a, at the end of the day, it's a distinction without a difference. But I, I've been writing magic fiction since 2013, long-form fiction at first. When I started getting kind of uh, heavily into Twitter, I started doing uh, short Twitter fiction too. And originally at first, it, w- it started with um, kind of Twitter series that I called Gatewatch Headquarters, which was basically the premise of what if all the planeswalkers in the Gatewatch were roommates in a house and were just like the most caricatured versions of themselves that you can imagine and just basically made sex jokes all the time. That, that was pretty much it. Jace was the butt of every joke and the, the characters were like the most caricatured versions of themselves you can imagine. And this was still like 140 character Twitter, so like everything had to be short. Short, 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 short. But I had a ton of fun doing that. And I kind of did that for a couple months. There were some, you know, for every Scry 69 joke that Chandra made, there were, there were some, you know, interesting, you know, funny lines in there too. And then that kind of petered out. I kind of ran out of steam on that. Had kind of hit the, the limit of where I could go with that premise. <laughs> I mean, it was running out of things to say. Um, and so I kind of got away from doing microfiction on Twitter. And then I think kind of in, you know, early 2018, right around when Dominaria was coming out. And this was right off the heels of, you know, we just done Ixalan storyline with those absolutely wonderful uh, web stories uh, with Jason Vraska by Allison Lurz, who wrote the, the wonderful Ixalan web stories. And Dominaria was happening and all these characters I loved were coming back. Jaya Ballard was coming back. Jaya, you know, mm-hmm. the all the all-time great in Magic. Fire Grandma. The, the all-time great came back. You know, Jace had undergone this dramatic character development. Vraska had undergone this dramatic character development. Liliana and Gideon were interacting with each other. And I was, like, really juiced on Magic's story at that moment in time. And so I started doing microfiction on Twitter again. This time, not just for jokes, not just, just doing puns and, and kind of satire, but really sitting down and like trying to write like little, very dialogue-based web stories. Again, like what are stories you can tell in 280 characters? And for me, when I'm writing, it, it almost always starts with dialogue, and it almost always comes back to dialogue. It's about trying to find the voices of these characters, or at least the versions of these characters as they exist in my head, which I, which I never posit that my interpretation on these characters is the correct interpretation or the way that they should exist, but they have versions that exist in my head, and they have voices that have developed in my head from doing things like Flavor Added, where I'm going through the exercise of like, what would Liliana say about this? What would Jace say about this? What would Vraska say about this? So the characters kind of come to develop these voices for me and I have to pause to say here that I know that as I talk about this stuff, you know, my writing process, and I use the word process here 
heavily in quotation marks because you almost can't dignify what I do by calling it a process. It sounds like the most insane, like new agey, pretentious, like death of the author crap. Like, oh my God, he thinks the characters talk to him and they exist independently and they tell their own stories. And I, I, like, I hope people don't take that literally. It's just like, that's sort of the device that, that exists in my head that helps me to do these things. And for me, it's I have to hear these characters talking to each other. They have to kind of develop their voices, and when I can start to hear their voices, that's when I can kind of start to try to tell stories with them. And most of the time, the premise for that story is just put two of those people in a room and listen to them talk to each other. And what are they going to talk about? What are the experiences that they have in common? What do they have to say to each other? And so right around then in 2018, kind of like the fictional premise I invented for myself, and this didn't really bleed into the web fiction a lot, although it came in sometimes. So imagine all these characters who are coming back, all these planeswalkers, all these Dominaria characters. Imagine that they're all on board the Weatherlight. And so they just have to run into each other. They can't not run into each other. It's a ship. They're all on board it. They have tiny little cabins. They're going to run into each other, and they're going to have to talk to each other. And what are the things that they're going to say to each other? And so that was kind of where the, the Twitter fiction started coming from, was just imagining these encounters between these characters, and what would they talk about? And so one of the themes I came back to a lot was this idea that Jace and Chandra were drinking buddies, that they would run into each other in like the mess hall on the weatherlight, and they would get tanked, and they would talk. So this was like Jace, as he'd just come off his Ixalan storyline, like Jace has gone through an amazing amount of emotional maturation and sort of the things he used to do like he's like i'm not going to wipe my memory anymore i'm not going to wipe other people's memories anymore i'm not going to just read people's thoughts so that i know what they're thinking like that was kind of the jace that started to come through in, in this like little twitter fiction i was doing is he's terrified jace is terrified because all of the tools that he's been using to get through his life until this point Human beings, we spend so much of our lives wondering, what are other people thinking? What are, what are they expecting from us? What do they feel? What do they want? Chase didn't have, to, didn't have to worry about that because he could just get in their heads and find out. But he's not going to do that anymore. If Chase made a mistake, he didn't have to live with it because he could either wipe the memory of the person that he was interacting with or his own memory might get wiped out. That was constantly happening to him. And leaving aside like how emotionally traumatic that experience would be, it meant that he didn't have to live with the consequences of some of the things he did. And now he's realizing that that's not there anymore. If I do something, I'm going to remember it, and other people are going to remember it. Try to imagine yourself in that situation. It would be terrifying. At least I think it would be terrifying. And kind of that's what came out from Jason, these stories, is he's talking to Chandra and he says, I'm not used to living like this. I'm not used to having to do these things. I think that he has a line where he says, I'm not used to feeling this much. And sort of all these insecurities started pouring out to Chandra under, under the context of they're drinking buddies and they're just going to talk. And Chandra turns out to be the perfect person for Jace to have this conversation with because on the one hand, she's going to make fun of him relentlessly because that's who she is. But it's, it's going to come from a place of friendship, and she, she's not judging him. She's not going to judge him here. The things he's dealing with are sort of the same questions of emotional maturation that she's been dealing with herself at prior points in her life. And so she can be a sympathetic sounding board for him. She can say to him, like, look, you know, like, 
all this stuff you're dealing with that's terrifying to you, this is just the world that the rest of us live in, and it's terrifying, and I'm not going to pretend it's not terrifying, and I'm not going to pretend it's going to make sense to you, but you know what? You're going to be okay. You're going to learn to live with it because we all learn to live with it. And I don't have the answers myself, and I'm not going to pretend that I do, but you know what? We're going to get through this. You're going to get through this, and we're all going to get through this. I'm so here for philosopher Chandra. Well, and, and so one of the things that came out to me, again, like, the versions of the, these characters as they exist in my head, Chandra's a good listener. And why is she a good listener? It's because she's been with Nyssa. She's been talking to Nyssa. She's been watching Nyssa. She's been, you know, developing these, these feelings for Nyssa, this relationship with Nyssa. And Nyssa's a good listener. And that's one of the things that rubs off on Chandra from Nyssa in, in my little web fiction universe. And so I discovered by accident, I'm like, wh- I'm asking myself, why do I think Nyssa Chandra's a good listener? I'm like, because I think that that's something that she's learning from Nyssa in, in this version of the universe as it exists in my head. And, you know, we bring in Jaya, who's the greatest of all time, and she just gets to go around just dropping hard truths on everybody all the time because she does not give a crap anymore and she can say whatever she wants to say and she's you know pyromancer grandma like you said and she's a mentor and she she cares about these people but she's also not afraid to just like drop hard truths on people and so i think one of the most popular ones i ever did was liliana says something to jaya to the effect of uh you know if you ever get tired of looking your age there are things that we can do about that and jaya says to liliana one of the things i like most about being my age is that i don't give a crap what you think yeah, she's like pyromancer Betty White. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, and then there's the the one that, that you know May illustrated that you were talking about earlier, where it's you know Chandra goes to Jaya and she says, "When did you realize that you weren't like other people? When did you realize that you did not fit in, that you were different, and and how did you cope with it?" And Jaya kind of laughs and says to Chandra, "You know, I still don't fit in. Nobody fits in." The world is full of people who don't fit in. The idea that anybody fits in is this fiction that we create for ourselves. And instead of worrying about whether or not you fit in, decide who you want to be and burn a hole in the universe to match. And I love that that I can write these little things and they go out on Twitter and, you know, they say something to people and, and people seem to take something from it and that means a lot to me. You know, every once in a while... You know, a trans person I didn't know will follow my account and they'll see that as my pinned tweet and either message me about, you know, how awesome the statement is or it's like the first thing that they retweet from my account. And I always feel like so happy to see that. If if my heart grows any more sizes, we're going to have like an aliens situation here. Like it's going to burst out of my chest at this point. All right. So maybe we should move on to our rapid fire questions then. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you want to kick this off, Bob? Yeah, so this one is a... Uh, I don't know if this is rapid fire, so keep it brief. Moderate fire. This is fire. like 20 pages of the 22. <laughs> uh, how would your spark ignite, and which plane do you think you would go to first? Uh, again, I'm, I'm a child of the, the American Midwest, so it, my spark ignition would be for the most mundane thing you can possibly imagine. And in my case, it would be someone at the potluck brought a mustard-based potato salad instead of a mayonnaise-based potato salad. There were 20 mayonnaise-based potato salads and one mustard-based potato salad, and this this heretofore unexperienced uh, sensation of flavor was what ignited my spark and started a lifelong uh, love of flavor in all of its forms. 
And then I immediately planeswalked to Ulgrotha and got stuck there, which is why I'm uh, such a weird uh, Homelands uh, junkie, even to this day. So uh, what's your favorite D&D class and why? Uh, bard life. Barding intensifies. Aggressive barding. It's weird that you would think that like D&D would be the place to be like someone other than yourself instead of yourself, but it's it's this is like the projection of me is like I'm always more comfortable being the person who's trying to boost everybody else instead of like being the person who's who's out there on the front line for uh Dungeons and Dragons heroism. So in in the same way that like I am intensely much more comfortable taking photos of other people in cosplay, uh I'm much more comfortable uh trying to buff everybody else. Sweet. So then how about cats or dogs? Uh cats. Cats cats all day every day. I have nothing against dogs, the goodest boys, and I'm really excited that they're dogs now instead of just hounds. Finally. Um, but so I had a paper route when I was growing up, and I had experiences with dogs uh, as a function of uh, being a paper boy that, that, like, to this day, like, the friendliest dog in the world could come up to me, and I, I like, flinch backwards. Like, I just, I can't. I'm terrified of dogs. It does not matter how nice they are. I'm absolutely terrified of them. And it goes back to the, like the poodle that was on my paper route. Uh, poodles, especially poodles terrify me. Poodles are evil. That's fair. And you know, given your supportive nature, I could see why, why you would prefer cats. Cause they require so much support. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's a bit from uh, Dylan, Dylan Moran's stand up where he says, uh, you, you don't really own a cat. It's more accurate to say that you know a cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, the, you kind of, there's a cat that coexists with you in, in, in your home. But, but yeah, I... I, I so which, which planeswalker would give the best hugs? Well, speaking of cats, I mean, it's obviously a Johnny. Correct answer. Um, a, he's, he's, he's furry. B, he's huge, so he can, like, really get, like, the good wrap around there. It, it would basically be, like, being hugged by a, a giant snuggie <laughs> and like he's nice and supportive like a johnny gives the best hugs and it's not even close i think vraska would also be a very good hugger and like very focused on you know like affirmative consent and respecting your boundaries like Vraska's not going to give you a hug if you don't want a hug and she's not going to let you hug her if she doesn't feel like a hug in that moment but she would be a very good hugger I think that Chandra would be a very good hugger, but she's a very physical hugger. She's the kind of person who sees you from across the room and screams audibly as she runs towards you and tackle hugs you. That is what my 13-year-old son does, too. Yeah, I- exactly. So, like, it, it's a, like Chandra's hugs would be great hugs, but you need to be prepared for it. Like, if you're, like, facing the wrong direction, she's going to blow you up like a linebacker coming unblocked through through the gap like you're going to just get destroyed by that hug i do like what you added here is the people who would give bad hugs if you want to cover that oko is the worst hugger oko is the worst hugger and it's not even close you would not think it would be possible to be a selfish and needy hugger but oko is a selfish and needy hugger like he's a worse hugger than tibalt and tibalt would be like stabbing you while he's hugging you but i would still rather get hugged by tibalt than by oko He's, he's an objectively bad hugger, and I'm sorry, but that's just the truth. <laughs> You'll get no complaints from us. I forgot Arlen. Arlen would be a very good hugger, although you will get fleas, and so you're just going to have to Shots fired. make it up. Make up your own mind as to whether or not that's okay. <laughs> just see Arlen walking around with this random, weird-looking collar. She's like, I'm dealing with the problem, guys. 
I, I, I'm sorry. I have, one of my favorite little web fix that I ever wrote and that nobody else ever likes is, so I, I don't know if people, people remember uh, Hal and Elena from uh, the Shadows Over mm-hmm. Innistrad storyline. So it's just, um, you know, it just goes like, uh, Hal scratched her head. Elena checked inside the lining of her coat. Arlen shrugged her shoulders and said, sorry, can't be helped. <laughs> like, you're just, you're going to get fleas. I'm sorry, it can't be helped. She refuses to be tied down by a collar, even if it's no. for her own protection. Yeah. Uh, what would you say your color identity is? It, it's so weird to me, because I feel like that that's a question that it it changes over the course of your life, and then also day-to-day, just depending on, like, what mood you're in or how caffeinated you are but i i think that like you know cross my fingers i hope this is a product of emotional maturation that i think earlier in my life i would have been kind of like an insufferable version of like esper or something like that like genuinely insufferable and i i feel like as i've gotten older i've shifted into into more like naya colors i think red is the big the biggest component just because i'm like I will cry at the drop of a hat. I will, you know, tackle hug people like Chandra. You know that that's the part of myself that I'm happiest with as I've gotten older and hopefully, you know, matured emotionally is is like being able to be okay with with those emotions. So red at the core, and then hopefully I think there's a little Selesnia that creeps in there too, just in terms of you know like valuing harmony and cooperation and you know the well-being of the collective and hopefully the good aspects of it, you know. From another core red person, I definitely see that. And I think it comes out a lot in your writing, too. And now the the last question we have is Michelle's question. She asks every guest we have on the show, and since she's not here uh, this week, I'll ask it. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized nickel boluses or a nickel bolus-sized duck, and how would you do so? Okay, 100 duck-sized nickel boluses, and it's because ducks are terrifying. (laughs) I'm sorry, there's no nice way to put this. Ducks are jerks. Nickel bolus is a jerk, too. He he is, but I'm way less afraid of bolus than I am of ducks. And again, we're going to go back to childhood trauma, because when I was four years old... Uh, I went to the county fair, and we went to the 4-H tent. And among all the other different animals that people had there in the 4-H tent for competition, there were ducks. Apparently, I I was never in 4-H, so I didn't realize this was a thing, but apparently people raised their ducks and competed their ducks in the 4-H contest. And I stuck my finger in one of the duck cages, and the duck bit me. So ducks are jerks. Granted, as as a, an adult, I can recognize that I totally had it coming because I stuck my finger in the cage. But when you're four, you don't know that you shouldn't do that. And they look so cute. And the duck just waddled over and just bit the hell out of my finger. And so ducks are jerks. All waterfowl, for that matter. Swans, geese, they're all terrible. We all know this about geese now. Anybody who's watched Hot Fuzz knows this about swans. Yeah. <laughs> it's true about ducks, too. And they're terrifying. So... A nickel bolus-sized duck would be terrifying. So how do you fight the uh, uh, duck-sized nickel boluses, then? I honestly don't think it would be that difficult. Bolus is not actually a highly effective villain. For all the play that he gets and all of his machinations, he always gets defeated by, like... He gets defeated by the Gatewatch, who make the Scooby gang look like they are just paragons of effective heroism. Like, the Gatewatch show up, they're literally like, we did no planning... We have no idea what we're doing. 
we're making it all up as we go, and they they kick Bolas's butt because when you get right down to it, like Bolas, he's like every supervillain trope turned up to eleven. <laughs> like Nicol Bolas never saw a plan that was so overcomplicated and convoluted that he wasn't like, what if I couldn't make it more convoluted? You know. For for his plan, which basically boils down to what if I murdered all the planeswalkers and took all their sparks, he attaches like three hundred like additional conditional steps to this. And then once he puts it into motion, he doesn't even do anything. He stands on top of his pyramid. And he's like, I'm you know he's like, you know my minions who all hate me and who are only working for me out of some form of compulsion and who, if they had the opportunity, would immediately stab me in the back. I'm just going to delegate this down to them and just stand here on top of my, my citadel and do nothing. And then when it comes time to actually do something, all he wants to do is speechify. Like, to the point, like, Ernst, Ernst Stavro Blofeld would blush if he heard <laughs> Bolas speechifying. Scott Evil would shoot himself if he heard Bolas speechifying. He, he would not be able to take it. And so I think for duck-sized Bolases... The moment they saw each other, they would all just start trying to outdo each other in like comical supervillainy to see who could come up with like the worst, most convoluted plan, <laughs> and all proclaiming that they're better than all the other boluses. And they, they would just there would be three hundred of them standing in a circle, all just reciting the "We Were Gods Once" speech to each other to see who could say it the <laughs> loudest. And while this was going on, I think literally all you would have to do is like nudge them into a box with your with your foot. <laughs> like get a cardboard box sized like interplanar you know portal and just nudge them in and then they would all be trapped in Ugin's fart box along with regular sized bolus uh, either for the rest of eternity or until Wizards Creative decides that they need their villain back and they hit the like break glass in case of narrative emergency uh, panel and bring them all back but that's all you'd have to do you'd have to just like shoo them into a portal because they would be too busy trying to out bolus each other I think that's the best answer we've ever gotten to that question. I'm glad that I did 22 pages worth of prep work for this for this purpose. <laughs> so I think we got to go ahead and wrap it up here. If somebody wanted to follow you, if somebody's been living under a rock, this is the first time they've heard your name. How would somebody find you? I'm on Twitter, on Twitter at BiblioVoreOrc. Also through a strange metaphysical phenomena, which no one has been adequately able to explain postcards addressed to the lost luggage department at the Greyhound bus station in Saugatuck, Michigan find their way to me <laughs> through a wormhole in the universe. So that technically works, but if you don't want to do that, I recommend Twitter. All right. Lastly, uh, we offer our guests an appearance fee. Um, you chose to donate yours. you want to tell us what charity you selected and why they're important to you? Uh, yeah, so... so Today it's for uh, World Central Kitchen, which is a uh, nonprofit that works to provide food to people who don't have access to food, either because they're food insecure or because of natural disasters, or you know, most importantly, right now because of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. There are millions of people in this country and in other countries around the world who don't have access to hot meals don't have access to to the food resources that they need whether it's because they were food insecure to begin with or because they're out of work and they've lost income it it tells you so much about the state of the united states that so many children in this country the only hot meal that they can get during the day is if they're at a school 
where they can get a free or subsidized lunch. And because schools aren't open right now, you have kids who don't have access to that food. For some of these kids, there's no replacement. Or even just people who, it's, it's hard to go out right now. It's hard to go get groceries. It's hard to go get food. Maybe you don't have access to that. And so World Central Kitchen has been working to supply over a, a quarter million meals a day in countries around the world, cities around the world. What they're doing is tremendous. It's always tremendously important, and it's especially tremendously important right now. And I, I know we're going to run out of time, but I want to just take a second to talk about this. Th- there's so much going on in the world right now between you know protests against systemic racism in this country and a coronavirus pandemic and all these things. And I think that there are people at home, I, I know that I've had this happen to me, where you're sitting there and you're like, what can I do? What is something that I can do right now to try to make a difference? If you have the resources that you can give money to organizations like World Central Kitchen, organizations like Direct Relief, which provides PPE for for medical responders, organizations like your local bail fund, your local mutual aid fund, your local legal defense fund. These organizations need money. And there are a lot of ways that you can try to do good in the world, but giving money, if you have the ability to do it, has an immediate impact. And in, in the same way that like every time there's a natural disaster, people try to give canned goods and things like that to disaster victims. That's not what these organizations need. They need money. They know what they're doing. They know how to use that money and they need the money. And if you have the ability to give, whether it's $5, $10, whatever it is, like, you know, take, take a look and see if there's something you can do right now because it, God knows, you know, the world needs it. Thank you so much, Rob. We really appreciate you uh, joining us. And uh, thanks again to our sponsor, Card Kingdom, and all of our patrons out there. Rob, your manifesto slash dissertation was a really great background, and especially on like a history of cosplay. Would you be okay with us linking that in the show notes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Thank you again so much. Uh, this is as, uh, as long as you fix my spelling first. <laughs> No way, dude. As somebody who is dyslexic, as well as just a terrible English person, uh, typos are my favorite part. I, I know that you meant, like, English the language, but I interpreted it as, like, you're a bad uh, English England person. <laughs> oh, it, it's, it's both, because I, 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 was, I was born in England. Most people don't know that. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, everybody. Uh, this has been uh, Lord. Uh, this is Taya. I'm Bob. I am Bibliovore Orc, and I think that uh, you're the bee's knees. Bye. See ya. Thank you.